0: In recent years, public schools across the United States have closed their doors in response to poor student performance on standardized tests, underperforming teachers, and low graduation rates. Funding concerns, however, also loom large for municipalities that are grappling with revenue losses and budget shortfalls, pushing many places to make decisions that emphasize the imperative of economic growth over and above an investment in neighborhood schools. In many places, these decisions disproportionately harm black and brown communities. Such was the experience of our guest today, Monique Newton, who watched firsthand as a high schooler while her home city of Sacramento made the decision to close several neighborhood schools to build a new sports stadium for the Sacramento Kings, the city's professional NBA team. In this episode, Monique recalls this decision as one of her first exposures to the idea that politics, specifically local politics, matters. Now a PhD student at Northwestern University specializing in urban politics, the effects of traumatic events on black communities and the role of emotion in politics, Monique crafts a compelling narrative from these formative experiences as a high school student to her burgeoning research agenda and work as an educator. Monique tells us about the empowering experience of letting the classes that truly interested her drive the path she pursued as an undergraduate at Oberlin College and reflects on the various contingencies from throwing shot put on her college track team to earning a Mellon Mays Foundation Fellowship shaped the path she ultimately took. Monique shares the transformative experience she had conducting research with black residents in the city of Cleveland And how she came to understand how deeply embedded systemic inequities and a lack of responsiveness to the needs of these communities shaped their decision to not participate in electoral politics. Monique and I talk about the tensions that can exist between descriptive representation and substantive representation, and Monique graciously offers words of wisdom for all of the students, teachers, and professors, who are grappling with how to discuss police violence against black bodies and challenging white supremacy culture. Ultimately, Monique shares her deep appreciation of the right to vote, a right that was so fiercely contested and fought for, but also recognizes that it is only one step in bending the arc of the moral universe towards a more just and equitable world. It is a necessary step, but it is certainly not sufficient. Welcome to another episode of What Voting Means
1: to Me.
2: Word is. I guess really privileged, like humbled when folks reach out with an interest wanting to talk to me because I know everyone's time is really valuable. So I like to start with that. It's probably like kind of an annoying question to get in an interview, but I like to start with the really, really basic tell us a little bit about yourself. And it can be any aspect of your life that you sort of feel called uh, to share in terms of where you're at right now, what you're doing, what you're up to. And that will sort of help us segue into the more democracy specific questions.
3: Once again, just thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Equally, you know, appreciative of the time you've taken out of your schedule to talk.
1: Um, I guess I'll
3: start, so, you know, I'm 24 years old. I'm a 24 year old queer black woman in America in 2020. I'm in the second year of the PhD program in political science in Northwestern. And I specialize and black political behavior, urban politics, and emotion in politics, particularly mm. looking at anxiety. Um, and one of the projects I'm working on now actually looks at seeing if anxiety about federal officials, um, politicians, actually affects support for local candidates. Right. Mm. So is anxiety associated with Donald Trump affecting uh, support for Lori Lightfoot for Mayor Lori Lightfoot mm. in, America, in Chicago? But at its core, um, and, and this is really what got me into the study of politics in general is i've always been interested in kind of what happens to poor black neighborhoods after a traumatic event occurs in terms of the local behavior mm-hmm. right and so let's just choose a random example i don't know we're on a in louisville um and yeah so what you know so what i'm interested in now and what i'm really keeping an eye out for is how black people in that area in that neighborhood that city are gonna behave and participate in local politics thereafter, right? Are we gonna see a dramatic increase in voter turnout for the next mayor? Are we gonna see the prosecutor voted out, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and that's like professional things like that. I mean, in terms of my, my personal um, kind of life from my personal life trajectory, you know, I always tell people, you know, I've lived a, a very um, kind of stereotypical African-American life in mm-hmm. America. Right? I grew up in a single family household. We were very, very poor. Uh, my father in and out of jail, you know, issues with, with DUIs, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and basically, you know, I I I have a twin sister. You know, basically the reason why I am, you know, where I am today, um, you know, versus where she's at over the exact same age, you know, we grew up in the same environment, et cetera, et cetera, um, is that like I could throw a metal ball, a, a metal shot put, uh, mm-hmm. 44 feet in high school. Right. Wow. Yeah.
2: So <laughs> I, I don't know a lot about shot put, but that's yeah. a long-distance so, side, <laughs> like uh, Yeah, so it's, it's pretty good.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. yeah, bad, yeah. And, and basically, you know, I had all these opportunities because of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I was very good at school, and, you know, because of that, I got to, you know, I got a call from a coach at Oberlin College, just very randomly, and the rest is history. You know, I go on to go on to Oberlin College. I had a very, great academic career, athletic career. Did this fellowship? So I basically have gone from I'm originally from Sacramento, California, and mm. from Sacramento, California, to Oberlin, Ohio, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for about a year. You know wow. now I'm in Chicago. Um, and my voting history, my voting experience has happened in the state of Ohio and the state of Pennsylvania. Um, and then now, you know, this year is going to be in the state of Illinois. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've actually never voted in, in my home state of California. Um, you know. Wow. Yeah, and I can tell you the, the reasons why I said it later. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's just... Yeah, it, it's just... Uh, yeah, and, and I just say that just to, to paint this picture, because I think it all
1: ties into mm-hmm. my socialization and
3: politicization, and, and why I believe what I believe today about the kind of system and in general. And, um, you know, my, my past life experiences are very integral for how I view American politics
2: today. Yeah, oh, of course. I really think that that is, I, I, I really love it when listeners have that context. That's why I ask that first question that is pretty open-ended. Um. Of course, this is a podcast about democracy, so it makes sense that sort of we're gonna be thinking about that question in the context of our broader democratic experiences. Number one, I would love to talk to you for hours about your research because (laughs) it seems, and this is not my area of specialty, uh, but it seems like it's that you're sort of fitting within that literature on policy feedback. But instead of thinking about things in terms of policy feedback, you're thinking about traumatic event feedback. Is that an accurate way of characterizing what you're you're working with? I, I think about, you know, the work I'm sure you're, familiar with, probably work with Tracy, the work that uh, Tracy Birch has done on incarceration in communities. And it just seems to fit so, I don't know, fit so well into that, that literature, but also, of course, transcend any sort of scholarly literature, because as you mentioned, this is of this is of the moment in particular right now, um, but sort of has been of the moment probably in many ways that, um, you know, the mainstream American narrative just isn't aware of these effects as they happen in communities. So anyway, I, yeah, I just, you're, I, I will continue to want to learn a lot more about your work. <laughs> um, I, I teach urban politics at, at Khan College um, and it's such it's such an interesting class because it, I feel like it should be required alongside your intro to American Absolutely. politics. Um, so, so yeah. And then the, the other observation, um, you know, it's, it's so, so you have a twin sister. Are you guys identical? We're fraternal. You're fraternal. Yeah. Okay. I have a fraternal yeah. brother. Everyone always asks me, they're like, so you guys identical? I'm like, no. Wait, wait,
3: you have a twin brother?
2: I do. Yeah.
3: Oh, oh snap Yeah,
2: that's why I was like, Oh I got twins! Yay! Oh Yeah, yeah. I feel,
3: um I can feel the twin energy. Yeah,
2: there's some there's some serious serious <laughs> twin energy, yeah. But it's funny people always ask me, like, oh, so yeah, are you guys identical? I'm like, no, he's no, like, we're not identical, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um So in any case, uh I, I think that um that that particular story is just Really important for folks to sort of hear and understand about, you know, what the opportunities are are shaped by in so many t- cases shaped by contingencies
1: mm-hmm.
2: that you had to work and to be that athlete to get that opportunity. But it's it's a really sort of striking, I think, example when it, it's in the context of the path that your twin sister has taken, which sounds like it was very, very different from the path that you took. It's important that we connect our engagement into democracy with who we are as human beings and the stories that we have and the the challenges that we've overcome and the way that we've been socialized. So that's a great segue to my first democracy-related question. I'm curious if there's any particular memory that stands out for you as being your first
3: memory of democracy. Yeah, I mean, so I will say, you know, I grew up in a very, you know, Afrocentric household. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my mom, you know, and it's directly tied to my grandparents, right? Mm -hmm. Who, you know, when they moved to Sacramento, they were basically the first black family in this really nice middle-class neighborhood, and they they had a lot of run-ins with their neighbors, with Mm -hmm. people at school, and it was really difficult for them. So I think because of that experience, with, with us, you know, they wanted to instill that kind of black pride. I think to say that, like, I think, but in terms of, like, politics, like, I, I didn't really, I was kind of a, really oblivious to it my entire childhood. Even though, you know, I had aunties and uncles who mm-hmm. were, you know, really political and talking about it, but it just, like, it never clicked. And so, for whatever reason, really, until I got to Oberlin and, and a bunch of kind of events happened. But I remember, I, so, I, you know, I was thinking about it, and I do remember When I was in high school, so this would be my first memory of like paying attention to a political event. It was local politics, something was happening in Sacramento. And basically what happened is, you know, I I graduated high school in 2014. Mm -hmm. So basically it was 2011, 2012, um, the mayor of Sacramento, Kevin Johnson. Who was a former NBA player? Mm. Um, there, there was this period where, like, the Sacramento Kings, the NBA team for the city of Sacramento, was potentially going to move to Anaheim or to Seattle, and so it basically sparked this like you know huge outcry. Like everybody thought we were going to lose our team, um, and the the mayor who had ties to the NBA was very supportive of the NBA. Was like, okay, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep the team in Sacramento, um, and he released this huge plan idea. To basically, build this like really fancy stadium arena uh, in downtown Sacramento. Yeah, the urban and, politics and teacher in me knows where this and, is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so exactly. And so, I'm probably like 13, 14 years old, um, you know, not politically activated yet. Um, and I, at that point, I'm just a huge NBA fan, you know, I'm a huge sports fan. Mm-hmm. You see the, the Lakers banner in the back. And so I was just paying attention to there, And then, you know, as the process went on, so I think it started like 2010, it did like 2012. And basically, you know, the city somehow magically finding up enough money to finance this huge, huge stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, I was at my auntie's and my uncle's house and they were talking about it. And I heard they were talking about how all these schools in Sacramento had to be closed. Um, basically, so that they could afford this amina. And, you know, I remember at the time, I was like, oh, this is just my auntie and uncle, like, you know, talking being their skeptical selves and critical, you know, like, there's no way, like, um, and I was so naive. Yeah, just like the political, you know, yeah, urban politics, right? The trade-offs, right? That that something had to go, something had to give in order for this really fancy thing to be built in downtown Sacramento. And I remember when I found out, you know, and they closed the schools, in the you know poor black neighborhood basically In the really really impoverished areas of, of town and a lot of it was, el- it was mostly elementary schools mm-hmm. um and i just remember thinking you know i just remember thinking like just this, this isn't right like it's you know i can't believe we're doing all these for for a stadium right? mm-hmm. like, you know fast, fast forward to 2020 the stadium was built the one center it's very beautiful it's very nice you know mm-hmm. they have a bunch of events and, and all these things and Um, every time I look at it, every time I watch a Queens game or I'm like in Sacramento and ride past it, I just can't help but think about all the schools that were closed Mm. to build this thing, right? And so that was, you know, that was like freshman, sophomore year of high school. And yeah, and so that was my first experience just with like the political process. Yeah. And the trade-offs involved in like trying to build something. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, and that... And that um, it so powerfully illustrates what I, I share with my students in cities, like the imperative of economic growth. But like yeah. this growth, the benefits are not at all. So
3: who's it for? Evenly who's it d- Yeah. Yeah. The benefiting, benefiting from, yeah. these
1: from
2: these the, the definition of sort of a, a zero-sum mentality uh, when it comes to the things that cities choose to invest in. Yeah. That's such a that's such a um a unique sort of first political socialization experience just based on sort of the categories of different things that I've heard from folks uh, who I've interviewed. It sounds like it was really impactful though, like this sort of this is kind of messed up, you know, like yeah. this is I mean for yeah. lack of it, that's not the scholarly not term, but like yeah. you know it's it's so it sounds like it really. Did did you sort of find that it was something that you continued to reflect on and sort of want to take greater action in response to in the years that followed or was there sort of like yeah. a, a lull I'm I'm curious sort of what the trajectory looks like following that I mean I,
3: you know I think about it I mean I think about it a lot now and like you know I get frustrated at myself with just like a lack of involvement and all mm. of that right? like, like I look back you know and I, and I wish all the things that i wish people would do now in terms of local politics in terms of engagement i wish i had done that you know when i was a sophomore in high school and that they could have heard from this high schooler that like actually you know i don't think we should build this stadium like it's not worth it right mm-hmm. and so i so i go back i, I think back on all the time just in terms of my lack of involvement and it's, it's just yeah it's just you know it's literally just a physical reminder in my hometown you know of yeah, like you said, just kind of the potential dangers of urban politics, the trade-offs that are involved, who gets what. And I just think, yeah, I just think it's a good, it's just a good kind of exercise in local political leadership. Because it was really all uh, Mayor Kevin Johnson. And actually a couple years prior, he had, he had literally changed the charter to basically a strong mayor system. So he basically given himself more power. And it was like, you know, constitutionalized, like it was really up in the air and there were all these battles afterwards. Um, but but like if he hadn't done what he did and like wasn't such a big proponent of it, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, I think the Sacramento Kings would be like the Seattle Kings or something.
2: Like yeah. That.
3: So it's, it's also an, it's an interesting exercise in leadership, right? And like what uh, particular leaders, you know, when motivated to do so, if they have an agenda or if they have something that they're really trying to do, you know, um, how you can kind of use the system to get it done.
2: I think I think from my perspective, I, I would like to see leaders exercise that agenda for neighborhood schools you know yeah. for, <laughs> for for um, yeah. you know in investment rein, rein, reinvesting in these in these communities uh-huh. that have been so hard hit by things like school closures and you know and now you're living in Chicago uh, so I, I I would imagine that these are conversations, if you're not thinking about them directly in your research, that you're continuing to have conversations with folks there who are navigating the school closures that have happened over the last well, the last decade or so. There's just been so many that have happened in black and brown yeah. communities in particular.
3: Yeah, and then, you know, it's funny. it actually, it almost came full circle. So I, I did this fellowship uh, in Pittsburgh, the Coral Fellowship of Public Affairs, And I was basically placed with a community center uh, in Wilkinsburg, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a little bit outside of Pittsburgh, um, a really economically distressed uh, black neighborhood, basically. And what this community center had done, community Forge, they had basically a group of individuals had purchased this school after it closed down, Mm -hmm. um, an elementary school that was vital to this community for a bunch of different reasons. They purchased the school. Um, you know, and just just on the subject of school closures, they purchased a the school and they repurposed it, you know, and now it's a full blown community center in each classroom. They went out to different nonprofit orgs, different, you know, individuals. And it's really becoming, you know, community period yeah. and just kinda of vital like the area. And and I think I bring that up to say I think you know, in this country, we could think more creatively about what to do with these closed buildings, these closed schools, you know, mm-hmm. if, forget interrogating, forget about interrogating why they were closed in the first place, right? But if we, you know, if we just look at the buildings themselves, right, and the amount of just empty buildings in this country of schools that are closed down, some of which are being used for XYZ, um, but I, I just view those as spaces that are such core spaces for these communities that like we could really I think we could really get creative mm-hmm. um, you know, about how to support how to support these neighborhoods with, with these spaces that are literally just sitting there.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that space and like the way space is constructed and how it can just shape one's educational experiences is so overlooked. I look at some of these buildings that are housing schools and they're they're kind of like so almost oppressive in the way that they're designed and having like the like you said the creativity possibility to reimagine that is really powerful so you have this experience with school closures as a teenager and then you know fast forward to this fellowship experience where you're sort of seeing the other side of the coin in terms of the possibilities of what we can do in the wreckage of these closings. And, uh, and then sort of that, Presumably transitions you to Northwestern for your PhD work, right? <laughs> I do want to sort of circle back around to um, early, early political engagement and sort of awareness of being in democracy. And you had mentioned that you are a voter. Uh, I never want to take for granted that someone is a voter. Yeah. I'm, I'm still no, looking for non-voters. You know, I, I would love yeah. to talk to folks who, and I think perhaps they're maybe a little more shy because it's not you know, in vogue to be a non voter, but I'm I'm hoping to, to get some folks on here. In any case, you are a voter. I'm wondering if you recall either sort of the experience of your your very first vote or if there was a vote that felt particularly meaningful or consequential to you, and if you just could recall any anything about what that experience was like.
3: Yeah, so my first time voting um, was two thousand fourteen. I was in Oakland, Ohio. Okay. And Oberlin, College, you know, they, they actually do a really kind of simple suite. Uh, basically, the gym is like the polling place. And, you know, they did a good job of making sure I was registered, even though I had just moved to Ohio. Mm. Uh, you know, and my thought process at the time was my first time voting. Um, and I was like, you know, I had heard that Ohio politics were basically all over the place versus kind of California things. And I was like, I'm moving to this new place. Like, this new place is going to be my home for the foreseeable future. Let me get involved. And uh and vote and so every you know to be honest every time i voted out overland uh it was fairly smooth both in 2014 and in 2016. 2016 was the first presidential election mm-hmm. uh, i ever voted in uh, um and that was a very somber day as you can imagine so then in 2018 i was in pittsburgh uh, pittsburgh pennsylvania mm-hmm. um and that was uh, so I've only voted basically in three elections.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, the last one being 2018, and I will say that was the closest I'd been. Like I, I almost wasn't able to vote. Like like Pennsylvania, you know, I don't know if it's like their registration laws, you know, uh, uh, you know they they have a lot going on in terms of their state and local politics. And they bas- I basically you know I was registered to vote uh, and I showed up to my polling site, which was literally down the street from my house. And they were basically like, I can't, we can't find your card, like, you don't exist. Yeah, and then I had to pull up all these things and be like, you know, I was told that, like, my registration, you know, this is, I literally just got the email, like, this is my polling site and, like, I registered a vote. And, and that and that moment really stands out to me because I thought this was a moment where, like, if I, you know, didn't have a political background or, like, if I, you know, wasn't maybe as stubborn as I am, <laughs> that, like, I, I, like, I would have been turned away from the poll. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I, I the, like I was really, really close to not being able to vote in this election. So fast forward to twenty twenty, and I'm you know I'm registered to vote in Illinois. And so like you know, doing everything by mail, uh, mm. which makes it just kind of like an added layer of you know just trying to make sure I get everything in on time and making sure uh, all the processes are complete. Yep. Um, but re- relatively smooth experience minus minus Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but definitely yeah. sticks out as, as like. Some questionable
2: stuff probably going on. Yeah, yeah, that's so. Um, it's it's so so. A couple of obs- observations. It's so interesting to me that the process part of it is sort of what's is standing out in your mind in terms of how smoothly it went versus sort of this instance where you had some challenges. And you make such an excellent point about how um, you're a someone. Uh, I obviously I, I I don't know you super well, but like. Stubborn, I'm trying to think of a a different word, Um, uh, persistent, like (laughs) perseverance, you know, uh, that sort of like, no, this is my right, and I'm going to make sure that I exercise it. So of course, you know, you have that alongside the knowledge that you have about the democratic system and what your rights are. And I do, it makes me reflect on how many voters are not armed with that information, don't know what their rights are at the polling places. And of course, you know, poll workers are supposed to offer them provisional ballots. It's just questions about whether or not that does consistently happen. And of course, it's really difficult to parse out what is a malicious situation in terms of I'm actively trying to disenfranchise this person versus a poll worker who is undertrained. In any case, sort of the we know this that having a negative experience at a polling place can lower your incentive to want to engage in future elections. So, I'm really glad that you're continuing to vote. <laughs> Not surprising given that, you know, you are a political scientist who very very clearly has a deep sense of commitment to the democracies large and small that you live in, in terms of you know, national politics, local politics. But yeah, I, I these kinds of observations are, are the kind of observations that I think it's important for folks to hear about on this kind of medium. I'm curious, in the mix here is this transition to graduate school at Northwestern. I would love to hear about sort of when that decision happened, if it was something you always knew that you wanted to do, yeah. how perhaps your first couple of years there have
1: yeah.
2: further shaped your understanding of living in a democracy. Again, anything
3: really that you feel called to no, share yeah. would be, would no, be great. Is, yeah, this is great. I mean, I love telling the story uh, of how I got involved in political science. Um, Yay. Because I, I basically, you know, I when I got to, yeah, so I, went, I did undergrad at Oakland College, um, and you know when I got there, I just had no idea what to expect, right? I mean, I, you know, I was a first generation of college student, so so mm. far away from home. And you know, my first year was a struggle.
1: Mm. Um, I
3: I had gone to Oberlin College thinking I wanted to do computer science, basically because I had just heard they make the most money. <laughs> and basically, my, my first semester at Oberlin, I had like a terrible time slot to register for classes, and I registered for like this. Tuesday, Thursday, eight a.m. Like intro to congressional elections politics class. Top line absolute legend, Paul Dawson. Yeah, and it was like right before he had retired, and I took the class. And, you know, I showed up the first day, and I was like, "There's no way I'm staying in this class. Like, I can't do eight a.m. Like, I don't even know what a congressional. I was like, I don't even know what congressional election is. Sounds boring. You know, there's no way I'm staying in this class. And I showed up. And you know he was a really engaging professor, and he just made the class so fun. And I was like, I gotta stay in this class. Like, there's no way I should drop this. So fast forward to second uh, semester, you know, I, I was like, okay, let me go back to computer science. Like, because I wasn't able to take any math or computer science classes that first semester. Until second semester, I took all math and computer science, and I was miserable. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. To this day, the worst academic semester of my life. Oh. And I was, like, I was on a track team, and it was, like, track season was, you know, full-blown, and it was just a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I did, and and I I always say this is, like, one of the best decisions I made in my life, is I actually went back home after that first summer. Um, And and it's the only time I've gone home for the summer. Um, And it was really good because I basically just got to kind of reorient myself and just, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with family and my sister, and I just returned to Oberlin my sophomore year just, like, really appreciative of the opportunity just like recognizing that like oh my gosh it's like you know i have the opportunity to do some really really cool things things that like people back home you know aren't even thinking about can't even imagine Mm. so basically sophomore year you know i was re-energized and i was like you know what i'm gonna go back to taking the classes i thought were interesting right which were politics classes sociology classes africana study classes philosophy classes and so i did that second year and and kind of the rest of history but the thing. That really got me into politics um, happened my first year at Oberlin, and that was uh, the murder of Tamir Rice. Mm. Uh, Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old black boy um, that was basically shot and murdered on site as the police officers pulled up to the park. They thought he had a real gun; it was a toy gun. Um, The Mm -hmm. officers, you know, were weren't indicted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that happened like right, basically, as I got to Oberlin. And so fast forward to my sophomore year, you know, the, this program called the Mellon Mays Foundation comes around. Yeah, so, so basically it's my sophomore year and, like, all the people I looked up to, like, all the Black students I looked up to were in this program and they were like, you should apply. And so I was like, okay, I guess I have to, like, get a research proposal or something together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was thinking of what I was interested in. And, like, I basically came up with this project that was, like, super simple and asked, um, you know, Tiger Tamir Rice, Asked, like, I was just interested, in, like, why black people in Cleveland weren't voting. Mm-hmm. Just like super basic, super vague, you know. I, I was like, because my thinking was like, you know, the, the prosecutor, uh, Timothy McGinty, you know, who was like this white man who was voted into office, had said like failed, you know, decided on things, like, not to investigate the officers, and I remember thinking like if black people had come out to vote or like if they had voted for a different prosecutor would the result have been different
1: mm-hmm. and I think
3: you know fast forward many years I, I think the result would have been the same but at the time you know I was really motivated by that question and so I did Mellon and that was my first introduction to what a PhD even was like it was not on my radar at all and then basically for Mellon I was able to do like, the Lock month summer institute American Political Science Association, basically, like, diversity program initiatives, And so, in that program, I went basically from, like, okay, maybe I'll get a PhD to, like, maybe I'll get a PhD in political science. I did a a final program, um, Institute for the Recruitment of Teachers, a summer workshop program, which just basically sold me on the importance of teaching, the importance of pedagogy, um, you know, just for, like, changing people's lives and, and really changing the way they think and um and so it was just a slow process. And for me, you know, I took a gap year and during you know, for me I was trying to decide between two things. I was basically trying to decide if I should do African American studies PhD mm-hmm. or if I should do a political science PhD. Um, and like African American studies, like it, it just felt like home, right? Like I, I just loved the idea of having a whole discipline dedicated to the study of blackness, yeah, and, and study of black people, and prioritize these black people, right? Versus political science, where at times it feels like I have to justify to folks why I'm interested in studying black people, right, mm-hmm. and why why they are important not only as people but like as an object of study.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and I ultimately decided with political science, right? I was I was that um, I, I could contribute to kind of the gaps in the field, the field, and, and make a little bit more of an impact. Um, and then the transition to Northwestern. To be honest, I always felt really, really good about Northwestern. Um, we, you know, at the at the Bunch Institute, there was a recruitment fair, and Northwestern brought two graduate students, and you know, we had, we just had a really great conversation, and I, I just kind of had the feeling that get in my gut then, and then obviously I, I went through the process and talked to a lot of different people, and you know, got accepted. For, you know, got to visit, and I just remember there was just thought, it was Matthew Nelson. I remember he was doing a presentation about his research. And was essentially making an argument for like why diversity matters and like you know sit in education like in the materials we hand students. And I remember just sitting there thinking like I want to be this guy. Like you know I, I was like if this department is producing research like this, like these are the people I want to be a part of. Like these are the people I want to surround myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: with. Um, and then on paper it's just an excellent fit. Like it's just an excellent fit for my research interests. So a group of scholars doing Black politics and group of scholars doing urban politics, people working on emotion and political psychology stuff. You know, they, they let me take classes outside the department, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it's just a, yeah, it's just been a really good environment overall. So I
2: think at this point, um, I'd love to sort of circle back around to the the big question. That's the, you know, the the title of the podcast, what I'm, I'm really interested in understanding, uh, which is, you know, what does... The act of voting mean to you, and you can interpret that in any way yeah. that you see fit. Obviously, it's a question where there's no wrong answer.
3: I think my answer to that question has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you know, and I and I grew up in this environment, right, of just constantly hearing about my ancestors, mm-hmm. about you know, fully aware, you know, and this is before I got to college, right, fully aware of. All the sacrifices, you know, people made to to give people like me the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back to my first research project, the Mellon project, like I, you know, and it's just it's really funny looking back on it now because you know, and this is my sophomore year of college, where I was like, you know, 19, 20 years old, and I remember, you know, and I basically ended up interviewing a lot of Black people in Cleveland essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I interviewed on a wide rail of like the political spectrum, like people who had never voted, uh, people who were very active. And then I got to talk to like some black city councilors. I actually got to talk to like the mayor of like, Oh, wow. Just like, just like trying to better understand how black people in this area are understanding politics. Uh, and I remember I went into the project, um, you know, really putting the blame on black people, mm. right? Like. Really thinking like, why aren't you guys like, why aren't we as a people voting more, right? Like, like I don't understand it. Like, if we just voted and we just like put people different people in these positions, like it, I feel like everything like, would be fine. Like, we'd be good. And so that was my sophomore year, and then I basically carried out the project over the next two years and like took a bunch of different classes. I took a class that was called Idea versus Practice of U.S. Democracy, right? Mm. Where we talk about we talked about our, our ideas, our ideals, and like you know, the gap between the two is is really undeniable. And so, so then yeah, so I took and then I took a class on race in Congress, mm. um, which is about basically representation in, in Congress. And basically, the question we asked during that course was like, like how effective are Black representatives, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like that was you know that was like the core question. And so I I, I was taking these classes and I was talking and then I was talking to Black people in Cleveland uh and i graduated with just like a complete 180 perspective right thinking that like you know i talked to so many people who hadn't voted and they were basically had telling me like why they were justifying it in their head Mm -hmm. and and a lot of it you know had to do with listen i voted for white people i voted for black people our mayor the mayor of cleveland at the time was black he had been there for he was going on his third term Mm -hmm. Cleveland, cleveland has Historically, had very great Black representation in the mayor's office and, and the city council. They were like, "I voted for white people. I voted for Black people." Um, you know, and, and I was talking to people in East Cleveland, and you know, in all these areas. And they're like, and then I look around me, and nothing ever changes. Like, mm-hmm. they, they were like, I, I look around me, and you know, the the middle class neighborhoods still get all the resources. Like you know, mm-hmm. they were just very aware that the resources weren't going to their community, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, and and it was just, um, it it just like, it just really changed the way, that changed my approach, right, and just, and then, and then, like, in those, in those two years, I was also able to kind of look at it from a macro, more systematic lens, right, Mm -hmm. and I took this class on the history of Black incarceration, Oh my god! the professor shows a stat of, you know, all the states with these really high, like, felon populations, and how many people can't vote, and then Followed by statistics of how many of those felons are black and, you know, and it's just really disheartening. So it's just really changed all that. And then you combine that with the fact that I went to Oakland College, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, like, need very critical people. Is mm-hmm. what I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's putting it very nicely. Um, <laughs> <and so laughs> you know, fast forward to now, um, you know, and, and, like, now I have a lot of friends that, and you know, I'm in these circles. And I'm in these, these like, yeah, I'm in these circles. Well, I have a lot of friends who like are very skeptical of electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know people who didn't vote in two thousand sixteen because they didn't like either candidate. You know, like I know these people; these are some people in my life. Um, and and I and as I get older, I, simp- I think I sympathize with them more and more. Essentially, mm-hmm. what I'm saying, like I, I totally understand the perspective that, like you know, we've been voting and like very little, you know, apparently, you know, very little gains have been made or totally honest in the perspective of, like, people feeling like their vote doesn't matter, right, and I feel like I'm constantly, you know, hitting against that and trying to convince people of otherwise. Like, you know, I, I don't have, I, I don't know if I should say this, but I have very little faith in this political system as is mm-hmm. to, to help the populations I care about, right, which yeah. are Black people, poor Black people, Black and brown people, um, and I just know, right, you know, we study American politics. We know the history of it. We know, et cetera, et cetera. I know that as is, it just makes it very, very difficult. Um, you know, in electoral politics, to to make policy gains in these areas and to do things like that. That's not to say it's impossible. Of course not. yeah. That's not, not to say it's impossible. Let's just say that it's very, very difficult. Um, and so I, you know, I could bring it all the way back, kind of where I fall on. Um, you know, as I, I've increasingly become more and more skeptical of electoral politics to help my people, but I still recognize that electoral politics is a part of the puzzle. Right? Mm. Like, whether we like it or not, it's a part of the game, right? And and it might not be, um, you know, it might not be the king, right? And it might not be the biggest piece. It might not be, um, you know, the biggest image in the puzzle. But it's a part of the puzzle. And mm-hmm. and I come back to like it, it, it must mean something. Voting must mean something if all these politicians and all these people in power for centuries, for centuries since the origins of this country have been preventing, you know, people like me to vote. Right? Yeah. Like they must they must be scared of something. Like that You know, that I think that that means something. Yeah. Um, And if all these people have been trying for so long to take it away, you know, and, you know, voting alone isn't going to solve everything. But like I said, I fully do believe it's a key part of the solution. And my, you know, I mean, you talk to somebody who loves local politics, right? But I think even when you zoom in on the local level, like your vote just means so much more, right? And and not just voting, right? Like, I'd like I'd like us to get to a point where we expand this notion of political engagement, right, to include uh, showing up to a meeting, to include protesting, you know, mm-hmm. to include you know, X-Men's, the list goes on and on, right. If we can expand what the the common notion is of how we participate in politics, um, and then try to increase engagement in local politics, where I think I think all you know the narratives that get thrown out there for why people don't vote, I think in local politics, you know, it's it's, it's a good bubble to that in a lot of ways, right, and I think. You know, and that's something I, I try to do in my work. Like I, you know, I'm all about how do we get Black people excited about local politics? How do we get Black youth is really excited about local politics? And how do we start this process earlier? Like I didn't get, you know, I mean, I, I had that experience when I was like, you know, thirteen, fourteen years old, but I didn't really understand what was going on politically until I got to Oberlin and I thought more about it and I read more about it. So I'm always thinking about how can we start the socialization process earlier?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's I, I just sort of the, the thing that keeps standing out in my head, sort of as I hear your perspective on what the act of voting means, is that it sounds like you conceptualize of it as a necessary but certainly not a sufficient act to both preserve democracy but also to make a democracy that works for everyone, for right. communities that have been Overlooked and passed over, and you know the vote has been important, but it's never been enough. Is that sort of char- a characterization yeah. of, of the the central thesis? I guess for
3: yeah, I think I think that's a great way to put it. The vote has always been important, but not enough. Yeah, and, and then you know, I and mean, I didn't talk about this, but I mean, I'm also very interested in like periods of representation. Um, you know, in this pool between descriptive representation, you know, substantive representation, and and I think about you know, like particularly with the mayor of Chicago, right, Larry Lightfoot. You know, she's a lesbian black woman. Mm-hmm. I'm a you know, lesbian black woman, a black woman, um, and we have completely different politics.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, completely, completely different politics, uh, and you know, I don't know if I would say that I feel represented, you know, represented by by Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and so. I think that just complicates the voting question right because i think we will transition to this age um you know where as just as people running for office a group of individuals running for office gets more and more diverse and starts to really look like us and and things like that um just wondering what what will that do for voting in the future you know and how how does that affect how, you know, we're interpreting the candidates and what's going on around that. I think the, the representation scholarship is, is really interesting to think in conjunction with, you know, local politics and, like, how these poor Black neighborhoods are behaving.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's such a it's uh, I grapple with this question because I think about there is something that is very um, affirming about having a representative who shares your lived experiences on some level. And at the same time, we don't want to forget or have that sort of obfuscate serious policy concerns that we have in terms of um, the positions that those representatives take. I'm reflecting back now on the interviews that I've done, and you've hit on pieces of the American political system, uh, especially in terms of your understanding of local politics, that. I've really been wanting to tap into. So this was really kind of serendipitous and amazing that you're also a Melon Mays scholar. I should ask though, if there's, is there anything else you would like to add? I I usually ask that question at the end. I just want to be mindful of our time, Um, but please, please, absolutely. I'm, I'm, my next meeting's not till 12. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the clear here for the next hour.
3: Well, I I guess just in terms of voting, you know, with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and, Police brutality and the conversation around like defunding the police, and I feel like there's a, there's a conversation we can have right now about like systems, right? Like yeah, a you know, mass conversation that's being held about a particular system, a system of policing in this country. And what I've seen a lot is uh, I've seen a lot about you know I've seen a lot of things that say like you can't reform this system, right? Or like you know, this is a system that can't be fixed, like you have to abolish it, you have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm so thinking, so I've been thinking a lot about like that rhetoric, and then like where voting comes in, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it'd be curious, I guess I'd be curious to see if like, do people think voting is more of like a reformist action? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the closest, are, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like, what the action of voting makes to these different people. Yeah. You know? and, like, yeah. Like what it signifies about the system for
2: themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, are we conceiving of it as a, um, as a revolutionary act or mm-hmm. as a, um, a status quo reinforcing act. And I think in a, the two party system that we have, it's it sort of, regardless of how we perceive it by default can become a status quo reinforcing act, you know, sort of irrespective of the party that you're voting for. I'm curious if if I may ask you, you know, I, I've been obviously talking a lot about the conversations that we're having about policing with my urban politics class yeah. and trying to help them parse out and understand the contours of the debate so to speak but also yeah. trying to emphasize that there are certain aspects of it that are not really up for debate what happened to Brianna Taylor is fundamentally unjust so i'm i'm curious you know in of course no no worries yeah. if you don't have any additional thoughts you'd like to add but i'm i'm curious sort of what what your message is to students, maybe thinking about your students who are grappling with these issues, perhaps in their, their American politics class, but if you have any messages or insights that you'd like to offer.
3: I think, you know, the point that I try to get across is just that I just try to get to how long this has all been going on, right? And I really try to get to the historical art of it all. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and I really try to get to um, how these systems have evolved. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and um you know going all the way yeah going all the way back to slavery and slave patrols right like that we know and, you know 2020 we know that the police policing as we know it is a direct descendant of slave patrols mm-hmm. and what does that mean like what what was a slave patrol right if if we know that these were people hired to capture slaves and to do all sorts of things to them right what what are you saying if you can capture a slave and return them to an army right? are you saying they're properly saying they're less than a man, you're saying, you know, and, and you really get to that, so you really get to that evolution of it. And there's this New York Times article that came out, I guess in July, um, you might have seen it, I'll send it to you, that, that doesn't, re- it's really long, but it does the best job I've ever read of like historically tracking just like how anti-blackness is rooted in these systems and like how it affects all the, inequalities, the political inequalities, the economic inequalities that we see today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, and I only say that because I think, like, like, I think that's something that resonates with people. Like, I think when they see that, like, oh my gosh, this has really kind of been going on, I don't want to say forever, but like, this has really been going on since this country was founded. But,
1: mm-hmm. And then,
3: so then, and then from there, like, they like to the jump to, like, um, imagine. You know how your you know those black peers feel, like you know as you know these things, and just getting into discussions of that, and like trying to get them to like put themselves in someone else's shoe. But I find that the historical narrative art is really um, informative, and, yeah, and, and powerful because it's especially this article because they have the like they have the facts, like they have the data. They like you know it, it was just an amazing article, and like after you read that article, like it's just very hard to like not reckon with it like it's just yeah. really hard. you know it's just really hard to ignore it like right? yeah it's, it's, it's what i try to get to so i guess i try to pursue it to just like recognize a that this is a real thing that's happening now but also be like some this has been going on for so long mm-hmm. and, and like what does that mean about the system as a whole
2: yeah how we got here matters
3: how we got here matters
2: and it is the history of policing in the United States is perhaps one of the most profound examples of that. And like you said, sort of laying out the data and the evidence, um, it sort of the echoes and the vestiges of those, um, those past selves in the policing system are still here and they're still, they're still, um, laying bare the inequities on which they were founded so so yeah any anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up oh this is gonna be a great episode you have such yeah let's 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 make sure it just happens again like and i would love to just stay in contact with you um